episode of the Northeast Newscast was made possible by Shemekas Online Market in Delhi and Seaberg Mufflers. Thanks for tuning in. Today we're sitting down with Glenn North. You are the Director of Inclusive Learning and Creative Impact at the Kansas City Museum. And how does that how does that equate to you and community building? Well, I think the first half of my job title is pretty self-explanatory. The director of inclusive learning part. Um, Inclusive learning is just like it sounds, being intentional about making sure that in our education programs, in our content, in all of the things that we do, that we're including all of the voices that comprise Kansas City, uh, oftentimes voices that have historically been left out of the conversation, such as First Nation people, African-Americans are making sure that we are doing uh, the best job that we can to connect with all these communities um, and and that all of these communities would find themselves and their stories reflected in our exhibits and in our programming or in some way here at the museum. Um, The restorative practices, what does that mean to you as an individual and how do you bring that to the job of Director of Inclusive Learning and Creative Impact. Yeah, you know, um, before we're going to stick a pin in that for a hot second because I didn't deal with the creative impact part. And I just thought I should include really quickly that uh, part of my scope of work is to make sure that I'm reaching out to artists and creatives uh, so that they're at the table helping us as we continue to document Kansas City's history and doing that in really innovative ways. So if you ever visit the Kansas City Museum, you'll notice that there excerpts from poems, there's incredible photography, there's artwork, there's sculpture that really helps to augment the story that we're telling about Kansas City's history. So making sure that we keep that creative aspect and that we are using art as we continue to tell the story. Um, So where restorative practices are concerned uh, is primarily the the science of relationships, um, how to build relationships where relationships had not formerly existed, how to uh, repair relationships that have been damaged, and how to um, conduct ourselves in a way that we're not doing any additional harm in our attempt to do the work uh, that we do. And so um, it's really rooted in a lot of ancient practices from First Nation folk and from um, African culture, uh, from Hebrew culture, kind of this idea of it started really in the world of the justice system. And the idea was that, you know, the, the current legal system If someone commits an offense, uh, very seldom are they in contact with the person that was victimized. The state or the city or, you know, the justice system kind of takes on the role of the victim. So the the offender, the accused person is paying restitution to or in some way interacting with you know, the government or the justice system, but never really directly with the person who was victimized. And so um, from what I understand, when this whole idea started, the idea was to put the person who the the alleged offender in contact with the person, the victim, and to have a conversation about how healing can take place. And that proved to be Uh, in those cases, a lot more satisfying to the person who was offended 
and was a lot more restorative to the person who committed the offense. It, it, it uh, in a dramatic way, could reduce recidivism and, and kind of the culture that gets created in prisons and, and the legal system where you just find people doing the same thing over and over again. And, and the people who are oftentimes the victim not ever really getting any sense of closure uh, in terms of what happened to them. And that's that practice. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you bring that up because I was actually, I had to, <laughs> I had the inopportune experience mm-hmm. of participating in that whole process. Wow. About 10 years ago okay. when somebody, some kid, mm-hmm. stole my laptop out of the office and in five minutes he had it all erased. When Passwords were gone, yeah, everything was yeah. gone. But his scout leader called me up and said it was this kid let's go talk to his parents because you know i'm going to file a police report yeah so we went his his parents intercepted him brought him back to me and then we went down to youth court Mm -hmm. it was the jackson county juvenile Mm -hmm. like 20th and cherry it's down by the dental dental school i know exactly where you're talking about and so rather than rather than have us separated we, we sat there in the same room, and he, you know, he answered questions from a moderator. He answered questions from me. I left satisfied that I got my laptop back, and a lot of the data he had to restore. Yeah. And so, you know, he, did, he didn't end up going to jail. He didn't, and I didn't want him to go to jail. He's mm-hmm. a 13, 14-year-old kid. Yeah, sure. And he, he didn't kill anybody. He stole a laptop. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a thing. Mm-hmm. So I was a lot more satisfied then than a lot of times you and I am now. Because mm-hmm. now it's just like, you know, you, they tell you, you dial 311 and you pray that the mess gets picked up <laughs> right, or pray right, right. that a blue car comes. Mm-hmm. And that's sure. the beginning of that whole separation. There's no conversation. Well, yeah. So, you know, at the onset of this conversation, I did not know that you had a real, you know, lived experience of, of how this whole model works. But um Although it did start in the justice system, the idea has kind of blossomed into now how do we do this? How do we conduct our personal lives or companies and organizations that that really buy into this methodology? How do we make that a part of the culture of of our organization or part of the culture of our family? Or how can I, you know, just as an individual navigate life in a way that is restorative? Um, one of the terms that you used uh, definition when you said First Nation mm-hmm. people, what, mm-hmm. what exactly is that for the benefit of our right, listeners? right? So, so when we're talking about inclusivity, I'll be honest: the the language is very important in terms of identity and how people identify themselves and how people want to be identified. So, um, some people would say American Indian, some people would say Native American, some people would say Tribal Nations, um, First Nation. I have have found to be pretty open in terms of not offending anybody. My attempt is to try to find the best um, identifier based on my interaction with with a certain you know community or a certain individual, um, so that I'm you know not being offensive. So, for instance, you know when we talk about 
I'm a black person. You know, I still identify as black, but some people prefer African-American. I think Negro's pretty much outdated, but there might be a few people who might even still prefer that. I don't know, but there's just an ongoing attempt, I think, because language, the language we use is so important. Um, so it's, it's, it's honestly kind of hard to keep up sometimes, but I really am attempting to be intentional about my use of language, particularly in how uh, I identify people based on what I understand to be the most respectful for the group of people that I'm referring to. And that's something that in your position here at the museum, that's that's kind of an interesting lens that that you that the exhibits project through. Mm-hmm. And a perfect example, the exhibit, one of the exhibits that's up on the third floor. Mm-hmm. And it's about the different communities. Yeah. And what lens, and when you go from one panel to the next, it's a different lens mm-hmm. for each panel. I think that's important. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so when we talk about, like, um, a way that, that restorative practices is... Uh, a part of how we do business at the Kansas City Museum. Um, Knowledge of self is important, so it's important that I know and am in touch with my own story and am able to communicate who I am. It's important that I know the story of my neighborhood, and that's what we do on the third floor. We're looking at telling the story of how Kansas City evolved through the lens of various neighborhoods. There are approximately 240 neighborhoods that comprise the greater Kansas City area. We're in Northeast Kansas City, so we started with the Northeast area. Uh, But the uh, goal is to, every two years, um, to be able to take another uh, geographic, you know, uh, section of Kansas City, look at the neighborhoods that comprise that particular part of town, work with the neighborhood, the folks in those neighborhoods to to collect stories and artifacts that tell the story of those neighborhoods. So um, that kind of communication and interaction is really important to how we do things rather than, you know, doing research and kind of having this conversation in an echo chamber amongst ourselves. You know, this is how we're going to tell this story without, you know, being um, open and receptive to having people who live in that community Tell us their stories and and how they would like to be reflected in these exhibits that we'll continue to work on. So how can the community of Kansas City itself facilitate conversations about justice and diversity through the Restore Kansas City model of restorative practices? So that's that's what we're working on now in terms of um, really... So first things first, I got to know myself first, right? So we just recently went through uh, a two-day staff training with uh, a gentleman, uh, Henry McClendon, who's from uh, the International Institute for Restorative Practices, IRP. And so um, we as an institution, Although we have been using that model theoretically, you know, for instance, even before I came on board, before the museum had opened to the public, uh, there were some virtual programs that were going on uh, during, uh, you know, when everything was shut down during COVID um, that dealt with um, 
gosh, the Community Remembrance Project, which I'm involved with, that looks at the history of lynching in America. Um, the whole idea uh, about uh, restorative practices was introduced in that series. Um, you know, the Northeast community, quite frankly, um, there's a lot of human trafficking that, that goes on in this community. So there was uh, conversations about that with the um, artist uh, Hasna Saul, uh, looking at music as a way to heal communities. So working very closely with uh, Dr. Jacob Wagner and Anita Dixon, um, who uh, worked very hard to, to help Kansas City become a city of music under the UNESCO umbrella. Um, so these programs were happening, uh, and, and you know we were, uh, like I said, this was before my time, but once the museum was open uh, and we were able to conduct things in person, uh, we are now going to go through this ongoing training to make sure that we as a staff are implementing restorative practices internally, then can hopefully lead by example in terms of bringing in the community and helping the community more fully understand restorative practices. How does that relate to guest experiences? Yeah, so um, when, when we look at the exhibits that we put together, making sure that we are as I said, it, it, it becomes important for us to not just operate in a bubble. So if we're going to be, you know, telling the story about, you know, how segregation impacted Kansas City in some aspect of our content, um, there are still a lot of people around who grew up and experienced what Kansas City was like during that era. So rather than just relying on a, a history book or our research, actually bringing the community in and getting some input from them uh, based on their experiences about how we can tell this story. Um, the programming that we do, you know, talking about restorative practices as a methodology. Um, you know, for instance, uh, one of the programs that we had during Black History Month was we had two uh, black male educators come in and talk about, you know, all of the kind of controversy surrounding so-called critical race theory and really helping the community to understand what critical race theory really is versus what it's being identified as and kind of used as a way to kind of... As a wedge. As a wedge, thank you. And, and, and we, and our approach to that conversation was not to do something just to be kind of edgy or, or controversial, but making it very clear in the way that we advertised it and in the way that we engaged with the audience that came that night to help them understand this is not about us. We, we want to remove that wedge and we want to be able to sit in the same room with people who don't think like us or see the world the way that we do and figure out how we can have a productive conversation, even though we might not not always agree. So I'll give you uh, another for instance. Now this is something that is one of our kind of long-term goals as the museum continues to evolve. But this used to be a natural science museum, natural history rather, museum. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, uh, it was very, you know, uh, there was an igloo here that you always hear people asking about that people could go in and stuff polar bears and all of that, right? So 
the Kansas City Museum has dramatically different content now. Uh, a lot of the science stuff you can get at Science City, which the museum staff helped to establish, which is an Union Station. Um, but uh, the, the story that we're telling now, uh, it, there's a lot of conversation that you don't typically hear in a museum exhibit, i.e., you know, in the Northeast, uh, uh, the gallery where we're telling the story of the different neighborhoods, there is a conversation about the impact of human trafficking in this area. Um, in uh, the Cultural Confluences Gallery, there is a discussion about, you know, J.C. Nichols being, you know, one of Kansas City's, you know, he, he was a good leader. He did a lot to help Kansas City, but he also was a very masterful at redlining. And so there's a conversation about that. So you don't get the polar bears and the igloos and all of that stuff when you come to the museum now. And quite frankly, some people don't like that. Uh, I've, I've had people come in and say there are people... Um, who are, uh, you know, on the third floor in our story sharing space, there are several really incredible photographs, portraits of immigrants. And in that space, we're telling the story of the immigrant experience in Kansas City. And we will continue to tell different stories in that space. But uh, one lady came in and she looked, why are they on a museum wall? Like, why, why do they deserve to be here? But the thought she said is, that. oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. What, what did they do <laughs> to deserve to be on a museum wall? And I think, you know, um, I think part of what she was saying. Did you tell her that it was part of the whole story? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, 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 I did try to engage her, restore the practices, I, you know, not, not be offended and not try to, you know, cause any harm. But, um, you know, to try to help her understand that. In the So the museum is a reflection of the community that we're in. And, you know, a lot of people that you would historically see in museums would be highly accomplished or, and not to say that the people who are reflected in that space are not accomplished people, but some of those people um, are, are very much just a part of the fabric of the community and they're living their lives in a way that doesn't necessarily get a lot of attention from the media and they're not being written about, you know, in newspaper articles, but they're having a, a great impact on their community. Um, and, and they have have stories to tell and stories to share and you know our tagline is home of the whole story so you know it isn't just about um, you know someone like I don't know uh, 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 William Rock Hill Nelson or, or Tom Pendergast it's also about um, you know folks who have just worked hard in this community and I just you know, juxtaposed against that, um, have seen people who come in and like one of the people is a Dr. Sabatez, the eye doctor, and there's several of his patients that will come through. Oh, there's doctors. And they just light up, you know, and they're just excited because someone that they know and someone that they can relate to is 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 here, you know. And, and that's on a, you know, they would light up on a completely di different mm -hmm. level than me, because when I go into that gallery, mm -hmm. the. I'm gravitated, or I gravitate towards Jerry Morales and his mm -hmm. wife. Okay, yeah. And, yeah. you know, Jerry's a lifelong Northeast guy. Mm -hmm. He's probably 85 years old mm -hmm. at this stage of the game. But 
what he's done, I mean, he proposed to his wife for crying out loud. He's been married to his wife for 60 plus years. And he proposed to her, I don't know if you know this or not, after he was done with a boxing match at the Whatsoever Center at 12th and Bennington. No, I didn't know that. He went through the center uh-huh. and proposed to her out in the front lawn of Whatsoever Community Center. Wow. They have lived and raised their family in the Sheffield mm-hmm. neighborhood. Yes. He's still in Sheffield. Yes, yes. And very active in Golden Gloves boxing. Yeah. Refereed uh-huh. 49, 50 years yeah. in Golden Gloves. Mm-hmm. And he's just, a, that, and that's that's my guy. Exactly. And, and, yeah. But you don't see, you know, you're not going to see Jerry Morales' picture in a gilded frame. <laughs> right. Um, you know, over the fireplace. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. what he's done for that community right. is, I, I, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Just by him staying there and being there and being a good role model. For kids, that's the point. at-risk kids. That's the point. That's the point. To to, oftentimes those unheard stories are, are so important, and they add so much layer and nuance to the overall understanding of what this city is about, and who lives here, and who helped to make this city the city that it is. So you touch on this idea of like inclusivity within community relationships, and that's even relationships between communities itself. So what does community peace and community inclusion mean to you personally? So that's a really good question. Um, I think that it means that there's like civic engagement that is taking place on all levels that the citizens of Kansas City are very interested and involved in terms of what happens in Kansas City. And I think I could even circle back to uh, the, the the woman who I mentioned a moment ago who was asking me why did certain people deserve to have their pictures up on a wall uh, at, our, at our museum. And the restorative practices model, what we would like to do as we are more immersed and have made it a part of the culture of of the staff and as we work with other city-owned cultural institutions and museums, hopefully uh, engaging them in in a broader training so that we can start to develop relationships with these other institutions, is to reach out to those who don't see the world the way that we do and engage them and give them an opportunity to, to talk to us about, you know, why they might feel some level of resentment that the museum has taken on this new uh, kind of approach to telling the story of Kansas City's history. Uh, we don't necessarily want to just reach out to the people who see the world the way that we do. And if as an institution, we can do that and lead by example, um, I think that that is of great benefit to the community. Also, you know, when we look at it from an educational perspective, you know, we are living in a very serious time. And you talked about a wedge, like there's a lot of divisiveness in our country right now. And so um, there are oftentimes, uh, you know, I've had conversations with teachers who, uh, educators primarily in, you know, in elementary and high schools, uh, who want to talk in a more broad sense about the history of this country, um, you know, warts and all. And uh, those conversations can get them in trouble. Uh, So uh, the Kansas City Museum and other cultural institutions, I feel, can kind of stand in the gap uh, and offer a space where those kind of conversations can take place so that a teacher isn't putting his or her job at risk because they want to have their students to have a broader understanding of history. The part about the warts and all, that's extremely important because the warts... Are, are part of history. Yeah. And they, you know, when I, I can tell you when in elementary school, when I was going to 
learning about history, Missouri history, American history, it wasn't, you know, I had no idea of, and especially the history that I know now, mm-hmm. and, and the so many different communities that is now being included in the teaching of American history. It's it's like an eye opening. Yeah, and sure. I, I I like that. I yeah. want that to happen, you know, on a system or a curriculum wide mm-hmm. basis mm-hmm. because it's very important. And yeah, it may be if some of these conversations that if you don't leave feeling just a little bit uncomfortable, maybe yeah. a lot uncomfortable, yeah. Yeah. then you haven't learned and then and you haven't grown. And if we haven't learned and grown, then we're, you know, who are we? That is, that is so true. Uh, you know, I um, typically learn more from the mistakes I make <laughs> than the victories I have. You know what I mean? And and I think that that's applicable in a broader sense when we're talking about history. And as cliche as it is to say it, when you do look at the mistakes that were made, when you do look at uh, when things were not done in the way that they should have been, then you have a better understanding, I think, of how not to repeat that behavior, how not to continue um, that cycle. But one of the things I was thinking about, and I don't know why it didn't hit me before I started working here, but, you know, people are sometimes reticent to talk about local history. And if you notice in school, you get a lot of like American kind of national history, but you don't get a lot of local history. So there's this show that's uh, become recently popular on TV. It's called Abbott Elementary. And one of the teachers wanted to talk about like the history of labor unions in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That's the setting of the of the the elementary school. And um so uh, the one of the ladies who, uh, a fellow teacher, you know, she's very well connected. She's always the person, oh, I got a guy. You know what I mean? She always has a guy. <laughs> I got a guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she brought in this guy that was a part of, I guess, like a lot of the labor union struggles that were taking place in the 70s in Pittsburgh. And he gets to talking about how many heads he cracked open and naming people who were still alive. And, and the teacher who was in the classroom was mortified. You know, it was yeah. like people that are still living that are implicated, you know, in these conversations. Mm-hmm. And so I think local history sometimes is not taught as much because of that very reason. Like you have proximity to people, you know, like the, the you know, Nichols family still lives here. So when the conversation was taking place, I don't know if you, uh, but, but the J.C. Nichols fountain where all of the Black Lives Matter protests were taking place after the murder of George Floyd, like his family's still here. His descendants mm-hmm. weighed in on that conversation and in fact donated uh, some money to the Parks Department and, and said that they understood why the Parks Department wanted to make the decision to remove his name from the fountain. But that could gone a totally different way mm-hmm. and that family has a lot of sway in this community and it could have been a different conversation so you do kind of step on some you can step on some toes you know when you're talking about local history and and when we talk about some of those warts there are people who are still around that could possibly implicate and it makes it difficult and and the family to their credit mm-hmm. came right out of the gate yeah. first thing right out of the yeah. gate was yeah. you know times have changed yeah we're not who we were mm-hmm. in in nineteen twenty eight when these true. plats were being yeah. developed yeah. and redlining was taking place. Mm-hmm. And it was and it, and it was so and it, and it wasn't just redlining of, of black people. It was it was yeah. the Italians, sure, the sure, Jews sure. and so they would literally take a map 
draw a red line around certain areas, make sure people in those areas couldn't get bank loans. Even when you talk about environmental justice, if we're talking about where we're gonna put a waste dump or something, more than likely it's gonna go in a redlined area as opposed to a suburban area. When you start talking about liquor stores and check cash in places, they're gonna be in redlined areas as opposed to, and so that's a very literal term because they would look at the map and figure out like places where there were people of color uh, and not just black people, as you mentioned, Jewish people, Italians, Irish people, mm-hmm. um, and that's how they shaped the city, you know, and so the, the, the effects of that are still very much with us, yeah. You obviously have a lot of ties in the community, and it's really cool to hear how you're tying together um, all the communities, especially within, like, Northeast Kansas City, and you're also trying to expand outside of that um, into all of Kansas City. And so I kind of just wanted to ask, how can community members advocate for the power of community communication and, re- and specifically within relationships with social connections? Wow. So basically, how can communities kind of advocate for themselves? Yeah. Is that, um, I think that, that restorative practices gives you a, a model for that in that it's about building relationships. So if... In a community, you you want like, uh, for instance, you know, while I was uh, I used to work at uh, uh, Bruce R. Watkins Cultural Heritage Center, and we're right next to Brush Creek, and there's an amphitheater um, that um, we really wanted to utilize for programming. Um, this could have happened. I, I left before we got, you know, all of the, the momentum that I would have liked, but because Brush Creek floods frequently, uh, the Corps of Engineers has done a lot of work to prevent that. Well, most The lion's share of that work has been done uh, west of Troost, near the plaza, Uh, not so much east of Troost, and certainly not where Bruce R. Watkins is located in Midtown. And so there were several, um, you know, business owners and people in the community that I was talking to about how do we get um, the city, how do we get whoever it is that we need to talk to, because you don't even always have all the information. You know something needs to get fixed, but you don't know exactly who to go to. So when you start asking around the community, somebody can say, well, I know a guy, right? You know, and so we were moving in that direction direction, but I changed positions and have, I'm not as in touch with some of the people I have been trying to coordinate that effort with. But yeah, I mean, there is just power in numbers, quite simply. And so with with relationship building in the community and, and, and what restorative practices helps us to do is sometimes you have to have a common goal with somebody that you may not like, but because I don't like you, doesn't mean I can't work with you to get this thing done that we both benefit from, you know? And we can at least engage civilly with one another um, and, and, and try to find solutions that are gonna be helpful to, to everybody involved. And so I think if, you know, that's kind of a noble <laughs> idea for, for a museum, but, you know, museums historically have always been about, like, how do we, you know, engage one another intellectually, right? And how do we, you know, they, they have been, you know, 
gathering places, not always for everybody to gather, <laughs> you know what I mean, but, but what the Kansas City Museum hopes to do in terms of looking at what it means to be a museum in the 21st century is being a place where people can come together and have conversations that are really going to impact them above and beyond just seeing, you know, learning more about Kansas City's history. What is it that I can learn from this history that's going to help me to do better in terms of how I involve myself in the community and how I build relationships with other people in the community to make Kansas City a better place to live. I mean, that's that's something that um, the Kansas City Museum, I think, had been moving in that direction prior to the murder of George Floyd. Um, I just got back yesterday from a museum conference, uh, the American Alliance of Museums. Um, over 3,000 people, you know, from all aspects of the museum industry. And this whole conversation is what can museums do to help right now? Because we're just suffering in so many different ways from the pandemic to race, uh, racial uh, uh, kind of, you know, division, uh, where are we headed as a country? You know, we're, we're really at a crossroads. And what role can a museum play in, in helping us find solutions and, and do a better job of building community? I mean, that's um, some museums haven't been operating that way. And so they're like, ah, <laughs> you know what I mean? But the Kansas City Museum, I think, has already kind of forged a path in that direction. And you know, I don't say that just because I work here. I say that because that's why I wanted to work here. Being a, and I'll, I'll just say it, being a, being a safe place mm -hmm. to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. And I see it as a former neighborhood association president. I've been 30 years in Northeast, 32 years, and 10 years as president of a neighborhood organization. And what I'm seeing now is so much divisiveness mm -hmm. just within the neighborhood organizations mm -hmm. to where, you know, 20 years ago when we had an issue with the city, said, we, well, we want to pull this fire station from this location and mm -hmm. we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to leave you with this, this and this. But we're taking three more pieces of equipment and we're putting it far, far away. Yeah. And that was a, a very polarizing issue. But it, or I shouldn't say polarizing. It was a key issue that. All of the neighborhood organizations in Northeast, all hands on deck, yeah, stood yeah, up at the podium. Yeah. You're not taking right, 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 station, right, right, right. And regardless of the politics, uh -huh, uh -huh. you know, and we all signed that letter. Do yeah. not move uh, FS 27. Mm -hmm. Do not take these pieces of equipment from 27s yeah. and put them somewhere. Ultimately, they did. Yeah. But my point is, it was all hands on deck, yeah. regardless Republicans, Democrats, blacks, whites. Uh, every every race was represented in those neighborhood yeah. organizations. We all came. Yeah. To, you don't see that now. Yeah. You just don't. Yeah, it's, and and it's it's troubling to me as somebody. I still consider myself a community activist. Mm -hmm. That's very troubling to me that 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 can't take place. And when that can't take place, bad things happen. I totally agree. I think there are so many things that are contributing to that. Um, it's, it's, some of these things are, are becoming cliche to say, but I think that we are being conditioned toward more individualism than we are a community. I mean, when you just think of the term iPhone, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's about when you think about the term selfie, you know, all these things, you know, social media, it, it creates this illusion of connectivity. And in many ways, it's a tool and it does work well. I mean, during the pandemic, like, thank God for technology, right? Being able to do virtual programming right. and stay connected. But at the same time, though, it does, I think, 
you know, the negative side is that it kind of creates this separation. I think that that people get a lot of, you know, bad information on social media. Um, you know, you become a YouTube expert. You know what I mean? You watch <laughs> two 30-minute videos on YouTube and all of a sudden you understand international politics better than folks at the, you know, United Nations. But it it... I think is, you know, you talked about the museum being a, a place, kind of a safe space where those conversations can take place. The the other thing is that I think, you know, Kansas City is kind of designed uniquely so far as cultural institutions are concerned. A lot of our cultural institutions are very strongly connected to the city and very strongly impacted by the civic process. And so uh, helping folks have a better understanding of what civic engagement is and what it can look like, uh, I think is part of our job as well, because I'm really having you know, to, to learn a lot of that. And, and unfortunately, one of the things that I have found it is oftentimes politically advantageous to create situations that divide uh, because it, it can help serve a political agenda that has nothing to do with the fire station, mm-hmm. but everything to do with someone getting reelected. You understand right. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so because that's think, a widget. Yeah, Look exactly. What I did. Exactly. Um, there you go. I brought. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. How much money is coming exactly. back to my district? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I think uh, we are uniquely positioned to, to help the, the community have a better understanding of how to come together and to do things like you talked about, all the neighborhood organizations coming together to save that fire station. Um, I think that that's something that um, museums can also be very much involved in is just helping the citizens of a particular community better understand civic engagement. And so how can individuals actively work to give all community members a voice rather than just a select few? Yeah, so that's the, the squeaky wheels. Right. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's the question. So we are also, you know, a couple, one, some of the sessions that I went to uh, were about like how to connect developing effective evaluation tools and how to more effectively connect with people who aren't the squeaky wheels, but whose voices still need to be heard. Um, And to be honest with you, I don't know that any solutions (laughs) were given other than the fact that it, it is important to figure out ways to engage with folks who are not always the ones who are at the city council meetings or always the ones who are uh, visiting the museums. You know, how do you how do you really get out into the community in an effective way? Um, and so that's something that um, I think is going to be part of my scope of work and something that I'm going to have to to figure out as I continue to, to grow in this position. But we've been talking a lot about effective ways of evalu- evaluating our uh, effectiveness and our impact. And we have to move beyond just, you know, the the regulars, uh, the the usual suspects. Everybody's going to everybody's going to call on the jock. Mm -hmm. Um, Everybody's going to call on the tall kid that Mm -hmm. dresses well. Mm -hmm. What about 
that little fat kid over there that yeah. needs paste. Ain't that right? What, yeah. What, you know, yeah. And, and I've done this before at neighborhood meetings. Mm. I've actually called somebody out. Because mm. very quiet. May have mm. been their first or second meeting. Mm. I don't want to speak up. What are your thoughts? You live yeah. here too. Yeah. And I've had to have that conversation mm. with people. You know, sometimes you don't get people at neighborhood meetings because... You know, they're not comfortable being around those kind of sure. people. You have to understand that just by living someplace, mm-hmm. living in that house over there and keeping their yard nice, mm-hmm. they're doing their bit. Yeah, yeah. And you have to recognize uh-huh. that because they're not going to come in this circle for fear of rejection That's or right. being ridiculed. That's right. So, th- yeah, so, so we've got an ongoing relationship with the Institute, the International Institute of Restorative Practices. You know, they're much further down the road in terms of understanding this methodology. They offer graduate degrees in, in this uh, field. So um, we don't want to just do a one-off with them. We, we still have a lot to learn with them. And part of that, you know, part of what we've laid out and in the scope of what we would like to see happen over the course of this two-year engagement is how do we connect with those people? How do we not only connect with those people who don't necessarily see, you know, who, who don't uh, totally agree with, with our methodology and our content and what we're doing, but also those voices that are out there that are important, but we've not heard from yet. Like, how do we find them and how do we reach them and how do we help them to understand that their contribution is important as well? So you got to stay tuned. I'll keep you posted. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else that, that you think we've missed? No, I, I don't think that you necessarily missed anything. One of the things I was going to say is I haven't committed this to memory yet, and this will probably take a whole nother uh, 45 minutes. I hope not. But just really quickly, <laughs> one of the things that, that I've been trying to put into practice is there are restorative questions that you can ask if a conflict occurs or if, you know, there's a there's a disagreement or, or harm has been done in some way. And so uh, the questions that you ask uh, the person who is the accused or Who's, who's, you know, the, the person who perhaps initiated the conflict is not, why did you do that? Like, that's your tendency, you know, is to, you know, especially with parents when a kid eats all the cookies when they were told, that, like, why did you do that? And, and, and kids What's like, I don't know. Right? <laughs> you know what I mean? And so these questions um, have been organized in a way and and vetted in a way that really kind of helps you to have these very difficult conversations. And really quickly, um, you know, you ask the person who ate up all the cookies, you know, what happened? What were you thinking at the time? What have you thought about since? Who has been affected by what you've done and in what way? And what do you think you need to do to make things right? Then the person who ate the cookies <laughs> has the questions that they can ask as well. What did you think when you realized what had happened? What impact has this incident had on you and others? What has been the hardest thing for you? And what do you think needs to happen to make things right? And when you stick with these questions, 
you'd be surprised at the kind of dialogue that you can have. Um, the conversation is still difficult, don't get me wrong, but it is very productive. So I've done this a couple of times, just trying to kind of implement it in my daily life. And so um, as we move forward with restorative practices, um, not that we want to be a museum of you know psychotherapy or you know mediation, uh, but but helping you know especially like you know there are other cultural organizations in Kansas City, you know, that have historically been in competition. You know, how do you on a, you know, from not just an individual level, but on an institutional level, engage in a way when there's been harm done or if there's been conflict? And and these questions kind of give you a framework to operate from to get to the heart of the matter in a way that can really be productive. So, um, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to me over the course of these next two years to really see how restorative practices impacts me personally, how it impacts my interpersonal relationships with my co-workers and other people I find myself, you know, in, in contact with. So the so I did it with my um, girlfriend. Uh-huh. Be careful. <laughs> <laughs> and? No, it, it, it was a very productive conversation. I mean, we, we got some things out that might not have come out or might have come out with us, you know, going at Sniping. each other. Yeah, as opposed to just having a, a, a tough conversation. Yeah. And then with, the, with, the, with my sister. See, and this is great because I'd be, I'm, as somebody who grew up, my, my parents grew up in a depression, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, this is not the question. Oh, no, no, that, uh-uh. no. So my father, what, yeah. <laughs> look at your slippers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Kind of and it's more about like, uh, they're, they're called effective statements and effective questions. Um, so, so effective, A-F-F-E-C-T-I-V-E, um, saying, you know, when you ate the cookies, it made me feel bad because I didn't want you to be sick and I didn't want you to have to go to the dentist because you have, you know, would have gotten cavities. You know, I didn't want you uh, to do something that I think would be unhealthy. Not so much pointing the finger, but saying how that made you feel or asking questions that are less accusatory and more about like um, really getting to like the root of things and not being so... You know, yeah. So anyway, who has been affected by mm-hmm. what you have done? Yeah. Well, Mrs. Barnes Bridge Club, yeah, is going to be affected because, because- I was going to serve those. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then you give the person an opportunity to respond to what they think they can do. You know, you, the person, so mom or whoever can say, well, you know, you don't get allowance next week because I'm going to, you know, uh, what do you think needs to happen? So, and uh, so that, you know, I can buy more cookies for the, for the bridge. What do you think needs to happen to make the, well, Miss Mars yeah. needs to get off her butt and go buy cookies. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, be, be careful with those there but there really it's the same it, on both it's, yeah, so it's one and exactly. two and one and two so you just give the like whoever you're having the conversation with gets the other card exactly right. yeah this is great yeah do you have anything else okay anything else it's always a pleasure thank, thank you. you so much thank you and thank you northeast news for being just such a great you know uh media partner uh, for the museum. We really do appreciate it. You're getting us? <laughs> it's, it, it, 
the, the way that this has evolved, I've really it's it's really been fun, and it's this is what community partnerships is all about. Yeah, and I, and I love working with you and Anna Marie Chalupa, yeah. the whole team. Yeah, it's just it's like coming home. I yeah. don't feel like I'm at a client's office when I'm right, here. Right, it's right, right. Let's just have a conversation. Yeah, let's talk. And you know, to be honest with you, I um. Uh, I've been doing this for a long time, you know, speaking in front of people, doing interviews, but I still always get nervous. I still always have this little, you know, I don't want to say something stupid or I don't want to talk too much and say something I shouldn't say. But, you know, I always look forward to to ours. It's still a little like, what's Mike going to throw at me? But (laughs) (laughs) no singers. But but it's certainly a, a different kind of interaction than, you know, just a lot of the other, you know, media folks I've had to engage with. For all our Northeast Newscast episodes, articles and more, visit northeastnews.net. And thank you once again to our sponsors, Jamaica's Online Market in Delhi and Seaburg Mufflers. Mm-hmm.